I just want to say hello to everyone who's watching. I'm looking over there. And uh, let's see, we go like this. And uh, we go like this. And we go like this. Right. And welcome today. It's great to be with you. And nice to see some, some new faces and uh, people who uh, maybe you're here for the very, very first time. Welcome today to church in a movie theater. Please help yourselves to coffee and tea anytime you want doesn't bother me. You can come down anytime and help yourselves. And uh, we're right away, we're going to dismiss the kids. They've got a little movie that they're going to be watching in screen number 12. So Jenny Samuel, our kids leader, if you can follow her and the other volunteers over to screen number 12, and you will enjoy, I think they're looking at something about Daniel in the fiery furnace. Am I right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you know who those people are? Shadrach, what's a Shadrach? A Meshach and an Abednego. Well, the kids will learn, and maybe they'll tell you a little bit about it, you parents. So just make sure you pick up your kids at the end of the service, or they're going to get stuck in Paw Patrol or Black Widow or whatever is playing over there, okay? Uh, let me just fix this, and this is working. Good. Uh, I just have one announcement for you uh, before we get into the Bible today, and that is uh, once again about Haiti. Uh, you're hearing less and less in the news about it uh, because the news is dominated with other things like Afghanistan and all of that. Uh, but Haiti is really, the devastation there is more intense than what people had thought. And uh, our own uh, Erdo Emergency Relief and Development overseas are there and trying to raise money for uh, water, medical supplies, shelter. People are still, you know, people are injured and not getting attended to. You can't drink the water in Haiti anyway. And to get water into those places that have been affected by that quake. So we're working with, uh, with Erdo to raise money for that endeavor. So if you want to give something... Uh, distinct from your regular giving, just mark it on an envelope and put earthquake or Haiti, and that will keep it separate from our missionaries, the Charbonneaux who are in Port-au-Prince. They're okay. The quake uh, didn't strike in exactly where they are. Uh, but be in prayer for the people of Haiti, but we can give in a practical way and do that, all right? If you want to give electronically, you can use our website to do that. Uh, we have two volunteers, one who can handle your in-person giving. Elaine is there, and Wedlin is behind her, and she can handle your electronics at the end of the service. Uh, she's got the machine, okay? So um, I'm just going to uh, have a word of prayer before we get into it today. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together to give, to worship, to learn. And uh, God, we pray for the kids. We pray uh, you would just be the center of our attention today. Uh, God, we pray for those in Haiti. But more than that, Lord, we want to give uh, sacrificially to support the recovery and uh, all of what's going to be done over there. It's going to take a long, long time. So uh, God, use us, and we thank you for our partners, Erdo, uh, working uh, there as well. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're in a, a series on the Psalms here, and uh, this is part seven. Uh, how many Psalms are there? Do any of you know in the Bible? Shout it out at me. 150. Yeah, there's, and, and the, does any of you know the longest Psalm in the Bible? Whoa, my goodness. Okay, we've got some, 
I better teach well here because we get people who know what they're know what they're talking about here. So we're looking at the Psalms and different Psalms in the in the Bible. We won't be looking at all 150, uh, I don't think, at least. And um, some of the more well-known Psalms, probably when you look at the Bible as a whole in the Old Testament, New Testament, when people think of the Old Testament and you ask them, what's their favorite book in the Old Testament? A lot of people are going to say the Psalms. As I've joked before, you're not going to hear very many people say, I really love the book of Judges and I really love the book of Leviticus. It just warms my heart, you know. Uh, but you're going to have people who say, I love the Psalms because the Psalms are these cries from the heart, these expressions that people have about life, about God. Uh, they teach us many things uh, about our relationship with God, but we, we relate to them and we connect to them much like we would connect to a song today or piece of music. Most of them were set to music. Many of them were written by David. We looked at the sons of Korah last week and the psalm that they wrote, uh, Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water. And uh, today we're going to go into back to something that uh, David wrote. It's a very famous story, uh, but a story that uh, we don't always think about the details and how much they mean to us. And this is out of Psalm 51. So if you have a paper Bible, you can just kind of plop it right open in the center and it might actually fall to Psalm 51 like mine just did. You know, I just did like that. and It's like God just wanted me to go right there. Never do that, okay? That's a, bad, that's a bad way of reading the Bible where you just open it like that and boop, you, you may read things you, you might not like, okay? Uh, but Psalm 51 happens to be kind of smack dab in the middle. Uh, and this is a psalm of confession. We are told that David wrote it, and we're told that David wrote it when uh, Nathan the prophet confronted him in my uh, uh, New International Version translation here, it says uh, Nathan confronted him after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. There's been television specials written about David and Bathsheba and movies and all of that. And even my little translation here says when he committed adultery with her. We're going to look at this and look at the psalm in a few minutes. But it's a psalm of confession. And the question is, what is David confessing about what? And what is confession anyway in that sense? I mean, some of you have grown up in a Catholic context, so you, when I say the word confession, you think of one thing. Well, this psalm may help you think of it in a bit of a, a more uh, wide scope, a, uh, a broader scope. But to understand what David is talking about and what he's writing about, you actually have to read the story and the account of it. It's extremely graphic. So if there's, I don't see, I don't think there's any little kids in the room, but what we're going through here is really ugly. Uh, the Bible is a great book because it doesn't hide the uh, flaws and blemishes and evil and sin in people's lives. It kind of gives it to you straight. And at times, the Bible is so graphic that it almost makes you blush a little bit. And there's some things that you, you almost debate, is that, is, can I do that on a Sunday morning? Can I read from that story? Because it is extremely graphic. 
Uh, but uh, it's worth reading because it, the whole story and the way David thinks about it and the way he writes about it in his psalm of confession here is very, very helpful for us. So you have to back up a little bit to Old Testament history books and Second uh, Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12 is where you find uh, this story. And then you can see what David is really confessing about. Okay, so are you with me so far? So you have to zap back a little bit. You have an electronic Bible, you can find it. If you have a paper Bible, just shift back and you'll get to 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. You're in the history books there. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, and it reads this way. I'll just summarize it for you. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war. So we're told by the author here, that the springtime was wartime. That was when the military campaigns happened. Again, you gotta put yourself way back in time here. This is like 3,000 years ago. Different time, different place in the world, different cultures. You gotta go back and put yourself in the context there. Military campaigns, war was common, all right? It's not the same as it is today in many ways. Some ways I suppose similar, but remember you're in a different time, different place in the world. And this was the time that they're supposed to have their military campaigns. David is the king. He is the top guy in Israel. He is God's man. He is the people's man. He's extremely popular. If David ran a, you know, a, a surprise snap campaign, uh, he'd have very high approval ratings. Okay, There wouldn't be a minority government if it was David. It would be a majority government. <laughs> so it's a very different system back then. Okay, But he was the guy. He was the top guy. He was the man. He was the king. And he was popular. So time of war, David sent Joab, who's a general, if you read the context a bit, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. So David didn't go. It's odd. David was a military leader. He wasn't just a king who gave orders. He participated in combat, but he doesn't go. Uh, they destroyed the Ammonites. They besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. He stays behind. It's odd. We're not told why he stayed behind, but he stayed behind. I mean, he's the king. He can do what he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. But that's what ended up getting him into trouble. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. Again, he can do what he wants. He lives in a palace, probably got a great view from the palace. Maybe he's a little bit bored. So for all intents and purposes, uh, you know, in our context, he's surfing the internet, let's say. He's bored, he's, he's looking around. He's, uh, he's got the droit de seigneur, you know, he can do whatever he wants and his men are off for the battle and so he's, he's, he's the king. And he's looking around, he's on the roof of the palace and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, we're told. The woman was very beautiful, so says the writer. And David sent someone to find out about her. He wants to know who she is. And the man said, we're not told who the man is, the man said, isn't this Bathsheba? So he seems a little surprised. Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, you don't find this out until later, but Uriah works for David. 
Uriah is, is a, a military man. He's part of one of the mighty men uh, of David. So David would know of Uriah for sure, uh, but this is an, in, an in-house thing. This isn't a stranger. This is one of his men, and this is one of his men's... This is his wife, right? And so David is told... This is Bathsheba, and then David does something, verse 4, he sent messengers to, to go and get her, she came to him, and he slept with her. Whoa, right in your face, very graphic. And then the writer even adds this little detail, she had purified herself from her uncleanness. All right, so we stop here, because this hits you like boom as you read this narrative. Um, there are a lot of uh, a lot of media presentations of this story. Again, television, movies, books. Uh, wow, I mean, there's old. It's it's an often told story. The problem with the retellings of this story is they usually paint it as if this is an affair, as if this is, you know, David and Bathsheba had an affair. Yeah, it was wrong. Yeah, it was adultery. But this was an affair, and she had a, some sort of hand in it, is often how it's told. She's often portrayed as a bit of a seductress. And, you know, David just was overcome by her beauty, and he just couldn't help himself. And so he, he, she kind of seduced him a little bit. And, you know, and this is often the way that it's presented. This is not the way that it's written, though. Uh, the way that it's written is that David, uh, as the king and as the guy in power, saw something he wanted and took what he wanted. This doesn't really have the air of some sort of consensual affair that took place. And I mention this specifically for the women in the room, especially some of the younger women in the room, because... What's going on in the culture uh, today is, is um, and even in some understandings of what the Bible teaches and the way some of this is taught, is that women are the problem. And so it's Bathsheba's fault. Bathsheba tempted him, and, you know, he's this great godly king, and, you know, and he fell for it, and uh, you'll see what happens next. Uh, this is the way that it's often taught. But again, this is not really the way that it happened. He saw, he took, he wanted, and he got his way. That's more accurate than this being some beautiful, romantic uh, adulterous affair. And women are often presented as the problem, and sometimes for Christian men, it's, well, you know, the way that they dress and the way that they this and the way that they present themselves, it's just so tempting, right? And uh, you, you hear people talk like this, and then sometimes women are also presented as a solution to the problem. So, well, you know, men are tempted by women, but, you know, in marriage, this can all be taken care of, and women become the cure for men. This is not at all what's being taught here. This is not at all what the Bible teaches. What that is is the objectification of women. 
And if anybody should stand against the objectification to, uh, to make a woman an object, if anyone should stand against that, it should be the church. And the church should be very vocal and very clear that the Bible does not teach that nonsense. Um, in fact, the Bible, if you read it from cover to cover, actually has a very countercultural opinion of women. The problem here is that David did not. And David treated this woman very much like an object. And we even see that she had purified her, herself, this commentary from the writer, from her uncleanness. That is a reference to a passage out of Leviticus. And again, this is very graphic stuff, but it's very, it's right there in your face in the scripture. It makes you blush a little bit, but it's right there. What, what would happen back then, as per the Levitical law, is that a woman was considered ceremonially unclean once a month. And so there was a period where she had to, uh, you know, follow certain things and purify herself because of her regular natural monthly cycle. And so we're told here by the author that she had done that. What this implies is that the child who will be in her womb as a result of David is not the child of her husband, Uriah. It most definitely would be the child of David. And that's exactly what happens. She goes home. The woman went back home. And the, she sends word to David saying, I am pregnant. Big problem. So there's nothing in the text that would suggest that this was some sort of uh, consensual thing if I were or if any of you were in Bathsheba's place at that time and the king sends men to bring you to his place and you know he has very clear intentions as to what he wants how do you say no uh, Uriah works for him you say no to the king you could lose your life uh, so this was a very very dire thing a very horrible thing that David did. He certainly had no intentions of making her pregnant, uh, but she was. And then it even gets worse, much worse. David sends word to Joab, his general, and he says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix this problem. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Bring him to me. And so Uriah comes faithful, loyal guy he is, member of David's military. He's one of the mighty men. He comes and he says, uh, how's the war going? Uriah, how are things going? And David says, look, take some time off. Go down to your house and wash your feet. In other words, take time off, pull the plug on being in the military for just a moment here. Go home. So Uriah left the palace and he even gets a gift from David. Give you a nice gift, go home. What David is doing is he's trying to set this up as the child of Uriah and Bathsheba. He's conspiring to cover up his own sin. Do you see it? It's very slick what he's doing and he's got all the power and the ability to do this and so he's doing it. He is, he is, he has uh, dove deep in 
to transgression and sin. He is in it, and he is going to fix this problem. After all, he's the king. He can do whatever he wants, and no one is going to stop him, except Uriah does not follow what David thinks. David thinks he can manipulate Uriah, and Uriah, ironically, is very loyal and a very godly guy, so he leaves, and he sleeps at the entrance of the palace. <laughs> he doesn't go home, and uh, he sleeps with the, the, the servants in the place where they slept there and did not go to his house. Oh, boy, David's plan failed. And so David was told Uriah did not go home. Uh, can you imagine this guy, Joab, who is David's general, his right-hand man in this little conspiracy? He's doing whatever David says. I mean, Joab doesn't even have the guts to say, excuse me, Mr. King, but this is a huge problem what you have just done, and I'm out. No, Joab follows orders, and he conspires very well. He's very obedient to King David and all of his nonsense here. And so he, he is told David Uriah did not go home, and, uh, and he asked him, haven't you just come from a, uh, from a distance? Why didn't you go home, Uriah? Like, what's your problem? And Uriah says, well, the ark. He's so, he's godly and loyal, you see. The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my master Joab, who's actually a conspirator here, my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house? and eat and drink and how, how can I do this kind of thing and uh, how can I go and, and be with my wife and he's very straight and as surely as you live I will not do such a thing O king I'm loyal to you I'm loyal to God I'm loyal to the men David scratching his head what am I going to do with this guy I've got to erase this problem I've got to fix this mess if this mess gets out that this woman is pregnant because of me. Oh boy, my approval ratings might go really down, right? If I call a snap election, I might not get a, might not get a majority, right? So do you see the behavior? It's incredibly realistic, isn't it? Um, it's eerily realistic because while we don't see, you know, this exact kind of thing happen, we certainly see things that are similar to it. And, um, uh, another, another unfortunate reality is even in church settings, even in communities of faith and places of faith, you, listen, just, just to be straight with you, okay, uh, this kind of immorality and sexual sin is all over the place, and the church is not exempt from it. It happens in communities of faith as well, and it's tragic when it does, but it does. And uh, it's ugly, and it's, but it's right here, right in our face in the scripture. Oof, very, very graphic. So David's got a problem. He's how am I going to fix this problem? So he says, all right, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. Uh, so he keeps him there, and he eats and drinks with him, and he gets Uriah uh, drunk, and he gets him, you know, quite loopy. But Uriah is not so loopy that he goes home. <laughs> he still doesn't. He went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants, and he did not go home again. Even though he's inebriated, he's still loyal. And yet David is so disloyal 
And David detests the word of the Lord and the commands of the Lord. The person who David cares about is himself. His pride has taken a hold of his life. He is on a power trip. He's manipulating, conspiring, deceiving. All kinds of garbage has just just run into his life. It's out of control. You know, when you tell one lie, you have to tell another one. When one thing doesn't work to cover it up, you have to try another one. And you've got to keep ahead of the thing if, you're, if your whole trick is going to work and you're not going to get caught, right? So he tries twice with Uriah. It doesn't work. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to his general. Now things are going to get really drastic. He wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it with, your, with Uriah. Uriah is the carrier of the letter that's going to get him killed. In it he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is the fiercest. Put him out there in the front and then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. Conspiracy to commit murder, abuse of power, the taking of this woman Bathsheba, what a mess has come into his life and he can't stop it. The train is rolling, the snowball is snowballing, and now he's going to get this man killed. So while Joab and had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Other men died too. So David really, he uses other men to get the one man killed. There are people who lost their lives that day for no reason except that David wanted to cover, cover up his sin. If many people who lost their lives that day, not just Uriah. So he uses these people like little pawns to accomplish this, the, the keeping of this secret and concealing of his sin. You see how bad it is. This is not the way that it's portrayed in a lot of the television and movies and books and so on. So Joab sent David a full account of the battle. And he instructed the messenger. He's basically going to say, listen, David's going to be a little bit upset. Because there's more people who lost their lives than what he thinks. It wasn't just Joab. There are others who lost their lives. And, you know, you, you might get a little bit of pushback from David when you tell him this. You see how Joab is, wow, is he, he's just wickedly obedient to David's conspiracy. So he says, look, when you finish giving the, the king the account of this battle, the king's anger may flare up as if he even has a right to get angry. But he, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, well, well, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of uh, uh, Jerob, uh, Bethesh there? And didn't a woman throw a, an upper millstone on him from the wall that he died? You see the names of these people who died in this thing? And David's going to get upset. He's going to say, well, I lost this man, and I lost this man. And so he's just, he's warning his servant. He's saying, listen, just, just play the game. David's going to get upset. And why did you get so close to the wall? He's going to ask it. If he asks you this, here's what you say. Here's the key. Just tell him. Uriah the Hittite is dead. That'll calm him down. 
What a conspiracy. It's grotesque. It really is grotesque. And the messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. And the messenger said to David, the men overpowered us. He goes through the whole thing, goes through the whole plan. Men overpowered us. We drove them back to the entrance of the gate. They shot at the arrows. Nah, 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 nah. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. True to form, David tells his messenger, say this to Joab, do not let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Oh, well, all in a day's work. And in the back of his head, David's thinking, ah, problem solved. Oh, the sword devours one, it devours. You see the arrogance and the pride that has just overtaken. What a change from the young boy who, who, who killed the giant. What a change from the, the boy who had the chance to kill Saul, who was uh, in a jealous rage pursuing his life, had the chance and said, no, out of respect for God, I will not touch him. Wow, what a change. I mean, th he despises the commands of God, but you know who he loves? He loves himself, the pride, the pride of the arrogance here. So, you know, it's all in a day's work. And when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And then we see at the end of the chapter the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. There is a common thread in Scripture that consequence follows sin. It's very clear. You can see it from cover to cover in Scripture. But what we also see in Scripture is that the consequence depends on the person. Leaders, kings, uh, people in authority who lead large amounts of people, people who teach, the consequences are more severe. Even James, the half-brother of Jesus, said, Do not presume to be teachers. Because teachers will be judged more strictly. Look at Moses, disqualified from entering the promised land. Why? Because of his temper? Because he, he disobeyed God in, shall I speak to this rock? And he whacks the rock with his staff. That's because of his anger? He's disqualified from the promised land? Yep. Because leaders are judged more strictly and the consequences are dire for them when we see them fall. Because there's so many people following them, you see. And so God holds them to a higher account and you see the fall of David and all of the garbage. He objectified this woman Bathsheba. This was not a consensual affair. He took advantage of her. He used his power. What was she going to say? Uh, there's a woman by the name of Rachel Den Hollander, who uh, was a gymnast for the U.S., is a lawyer now and a Christian. She was the first person to publicly accuse, uh, what's his name, Larry Nasser of sexual assault, the doctor for the American gymnast uh, team who sexually assaulted scores of women will spend the rest of his life behind bars and she was the first person to come out she writes profoundly on issues of justice and forgiveness and redemption from a christian perspective as a lawyer 
I find some of the things that she writes almost prophetic, she, powerful communicator. And she uses the term and she says, what, what David did to Bathsheba was rape. And you better get it right. She's very, very outspoken about this. And while the scripture doesn't specifically use that term, wow, uh, to say that this was a consensual thing is false when we read the scripture. Um, so he objectifies this woman. He takes her. He deceives. He conspiracy, abuse of power, murder, theft, adultery, using the word in a pleasant sense. I mean, you know, Rachel Denholler, Denhollander will say this was rape. Certainly wasn't consensual. Using the Lord's name in vain. He is using the Lord's name in vain because whatever he does, he's, he's not only a military leader, he's a spiritual leader. He's a, in that day, that's a, you didn't have a separation between spirituality and politics and the military. It was all joined together. So he is misrepresenting God by his behavior. That's using, he's breaking virtually every single commandment in the Ten Commandments. This is what he did. And there are brutal consequences to his actions, brutal and grotesque and violent consequences. So Nathan the prophet confronts David. He comes to him and he says, David, I'm going to tell you a little story. You like stories? And David, sure, I like stories. I mean, David's got his feet up on the, on the royal sofa. He's taking care of business. He's cleaning up this problem. It's all gone. He's the man. He's the king. He's in power. So David, uh, Nathan says, I'm going to tell you a little story. So there are two men in a certain town. One of them's rich and the other is poor. And the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, lots of livestock, very, very wealthy, David. You get the picture? Yeah, yeah, I understand. I understand. Tell me more, David or Nathan. But the poor man had nothing, nothing except one little lamb he had bought poor he's only got one piece of little little lamb that he buys and he raises that lamb david can you see it yeah 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 i can see it tell me more and it grew up with him and his children this little animal it shared his food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arms david how he how this poor man loved this little this little sheep it was like a daughter to him you see what nathan is doing right and david doesn't see it at all David is he's sympathetic toward this poor man who has this little sheep that he raised like a daughter to him. And you could, you could see David, he's not going to like this rich guy. Well, now a traveler, Nathan continues in his story, came to the rich man. But the rich man, wow, he, he refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. So he could have cooked a nice, I mean, the guy's got sheep and cattle galore. Back in that day, you catch the animal, you kill the animal, you eat the animal. So he could have done that. It wouldn't have cost him much. He's got tons of livestock, but no, he refrains. And you know what he does, this rich guy, David? Let me tell you what he does. Oh, tell me, tell me, tell me. Instead, he took the little lamb that belonged to the poor guy. He took it, he stole it from the poor guy, and he killed it and prepared it for the visitor. Wow, what a bad guy. 
He must be a... David burned with anger, the scripture says. He's so angry against the man. And he says to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives. Woo. Be careful when you say that. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. And David is seething in anger. Maybe he thinks it's a true story. Maybe he bring me this guy. I'm going to kill this guy and take vengeance on behalf of that man who lost his little, his little baby lamb that he raised and was like a daughter to him. I'm going to kill that man. How dare he do that? That's so unfair. That's so unjust. That's so wrong. He's burning with anger. The man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you say as sure as the Lord lives, oh boy, because he did such a thing and had no pity. He falls right into Nathan's trap. The prophet tells a brilliant story, captures the emotion of David and looks him straight in the eye and he says, you are the man. You are that guy. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king of Israel. You were rich. You had everything. You're the king. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your, your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. You had everything. I gave you the whole house of Israel and Judah. You're the rich guy. Do you get it? And if all this had, not, had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? He has caught him. He has confronted him. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. Shame on you what you have done. You are that man. He confronts him brutally. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Our enemies. You, you allowed him to die by the hands of our enemies for no reason except to cover your own tracks. Now, therefore, here comes the consequence. Awful, violent, grotesque, but again, he's the king. He's the king and he's held to a standard and the consequences will be severe. The sword will never depart from your house. You had him killed with the sword. It will never depart from your house. There's going to be violence in your house, in your family. It will never end. Ah, because you despised me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. You took what was not yours. It's not a consensual thing. You took. This is what the Lord says out of your own household. I am going to bring calamity upon you Be before your very eyes. I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Ugly. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. David is caught immediately. He says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, I have sinned against the Lord. And then he's going to put his pen to paper and write Psalm 51. He says, the Lord has taken away your sin. 
You are not going to die. For breaking those commandments, he should have lost his life by the law. He should, he should have been taken. He should have been executed. You are not going to die, but because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. At least in my translation, it says that the son born to you will die. She's pregnant. That child is going to pass away. And that's exactly what happens. And you see the grief that David experiences. He thinks to himself, maybe God will have mercy on me. And the grief that he experiences, the child passes away. The child is gone. And David rather remarkably uh, uh, moves on from that grief. His attendants are shocked. They said, you grieved so much for this child, and now this child is gone and passed away, and now you're eating and drinking and taking care of yourself. And he says to himself, well, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live, but now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him. Hope of meeting that child in the afterlife somehow but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. Oh, that's different behavior. Didn't take. He comforted her. Treats her differently this time, apparently. She is now his wife. He is with her. She gives birth to a son. The son's name is Solomon, the builder of the first temple. What happened to David after he was confronted by Nathan? Well, you see this beautifully written for us in Psalm 51. It's ugly, it's grotesque what he did. But this psalm and what happens in David's life after all of these events are evidence that God can forgive even the hardest, hardest heart even the most proud and arrogant person, even a person who did what David did, and the consequences, I mean, David's son from the affair dies. But later on, you see his, his children. So Amnon is one of his sons who, and the word is there in the Old Testament text, rapes his half-sister Tamar. Tamar's uh, brother, uh, Absalom, ends up killing Amnon because of this. Just as, as Nathan had said, the sword will never leave your house. Absalom would later conspire for the throne of David. What a mess. And yet God still forgave this man. Even though there were terrible consequences as a result, he still forgave him and still used him. And he was restored to a right place with God. And you see it. Uh, on display here in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my mistakes. No. Blot out my error in judgment. No. Uh, blot out my bad uh, choices. No. Blot out my transgressions this is no half-hearted confession here this is the full thing there's no if well God you know if 
Bathsheba hadn't have dressed this way. Uh, you don't see that. Uh, and God, you know, I was tired and, uh, you know, and it just overcame me. Uh, no. Uh, but God, you know, there was no. Oh, it was a bad choices. I apologize. I'll learn from it. No. You see him. He is going to admit this is, this is transgression. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's transgression. It's iniquity. It's sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And it would stay that way. He would live with this with this and watching it in his children watching the way that his own children behaved as a consequence of his own sin it's always before me i can't forget it i know my transgression my sin is always before me against you and you only have i sinned some people get irritated by this and they say well didn't he sin against bathsheba didn't he sin against uriah of course he did but here he's talking to the one who made the moral law in the first place He's saying, I've sinned against you, God. This is your thing. This is your way. This is your law. These are your ethics. These are your commands. And I broke all of them against you. This between me and you, I sinned against you. And that's what confession is when you say, God, I am wrong. God, you are right. There's no ifs, there's no ands, there's no buts. You're not a politician, you're not a sports figure, you're not an actor who's saying, well, I made a mistake and I'll learn from it. <laughs> well, you know, she was this way. No, I read a story uh, early this morning in researching this and, and there's a, a woman in, in the U.S. in Boston, 37 years old, been married since she was 18 years old to the same guy. Beautiful woman, uh, got three teenage uh, kids, a nurse in intensive care. And this woman starts putting pictures of herself on the internet. And then she starts putting pictures of herself on uh, fans only, I think it's called, which has been in the news recently. And then she starts making some big, big money with these pictures, because you gotta pay to look at them, right? And then she gets her husband in on this gig. And the two of them are doing stuff in front of video cameras and people are paying big money. All of a sudden she's making 75 grand a month doing this stuff. People at her work in the hospital saw the stuff and ratted on her. And she had to face the boss and, and the authorities. They have a policy on this thing. And so that you, that she's confronted. You better take these pictures off the internet or you're gonna lose your job. You know what she says? I quit. I'm making between 75,000 and 200 grand a month with these pictures. You say, well, she puts pictures of herself online. She's objectifying herself. I can look. No, you can't. Men, listen to me, please. If you get anything from this message at all, men, just because someone apparently objectifies themselves, and presents himself that way in your mind that does not give you an excuse to objectify a person. I remember watching the Super Bowl halftime show two, three years ago. We had a Bible college intern over at our house. We're watching the Super Bowl halftime show and Jennifer Lopez and Shakira do this dance. You remember the dance? Oh boy, wardrobe malfunction. You're, you're on steroids. That's the type of thing you see in places. So we're watching this. Uh, uh, 
Maybe we should turn the channel. We've got the Bible college intern on our couch here. <laughs> it's not going to look, turn the channel. Just because, it, and you know, they have their reasons for, you know, dancing such a dance and presenting themselves in such a way. That's their business. That's not your business, man. That doesn't give you an excuse to treat them as an object. Even if they say, I am an object, pay me money and consume. That doesn't give you the right to do it. A male is a man when he says no. Even if the culture teaches the objectification of women, I will not buy that teaching. Men, if you get one thing, just take that because this is a culture that objectifies women all the time. David, he says, I'm a, I'm a sinner. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak. God, I am wrong. God, you are right. Surely I was sinful at birth. It, it has had me for, since the time I was born. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So he's not saying that conception is sin. He's saying this thing, this ticking time bomb of sin has been with me since I was an infant. This is the doctrine of total depravity, we call it, where every part of us is infected somehow by sin and starts, we're born with this ticking time bomb. And this is what he's, this is what he's saying. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. Teach me, you teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop is what they used to put the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of the homes in Egypt when the Passover happened. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. God, you can forgive even me is his hope. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart. It's the same uh, create as the same creation in the beginning. Genesis, God created. Create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. There's an old chorus we used to sing based on that. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. He feels like he doesn't, he deserves what's coming to him, but he's, he's begging God simply to forgive him. He doesn't want success. He doesn't want power. He's not justifying himself. He just wants God. He just wants God back in his life. Do not cast me from your presence. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me, he says. The language, I mean, have mercy, blot out, wash, cleanse. Let me hear, create, renew, restore, grant, save. It's powerful language. And, and on the other side, hide your face from, from my sin. Do not cast me away. Do not take your spirit away. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. 
which he continued to do. Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. If this were that easy, I would just bring that stuff to you, God. But that's not what you really want. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. It gives hope to the sinner. Because if God can forgive David, then God can forgive you. Have you known anybody who behaved like David? I've known people who've done half of what he, what he did and people who've done the other half. I've known people like that. You say, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a, you know, this kind of power adulterer. I'm not a conspirator. I'm not any of those things. Yeah, but you're something. You're something. And there's something in your life that you need to be forgiven of by God. This is the testimony of Scripture. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's a little bit of David in all of us somewhere. A broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper, his land. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, his city. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. In their, in their context, there will be worship. There will be worship. That's what happens when you experience the forgiveness of God. Uh, so there's two kinds of people, I think. And musicians, you could come and start to play. We'll finish the service. Uh, there's two kinds of people. There's people who've experienced the forgiveness of God. And need to continue that whole process of experiencing God's forgiveness and his cleansing. Even if you're a Christian, you, you, you're still going to sin. You're not going to be perfect this side of eternity. But you're in a process of sanctification and consecration. So you, you, either you've experienced God's forgiveness and need to continue to do that. Or you haven't. Or you haven't. And you're, you're uh, away from God. And you're, you don't have a relationship with God. You can't talk about the restoring of a relationship because you never had one in the first place. So I want to pray for both kinds of people as we finish today. Uh, so Father, we just thank you so much for your word, how brutally honest it is as we look back in time and, and think about our lives today. Um, but God, I pray uh, first for the believers in this room, people who are watching online, people who are going to watch, people who are going to listen. I pray, God, uh, that we would hold a humble heart before you and that we would be quick to come to you with our sin and our transgression. And we would be quick to call out to you for your forgiveness and your grace. You say we can come boldly before you and obtain mercy in our time of need. So forgive us, God, uh, who, who uh, call on you as our Father and our, and our God. And I pray for the other group of people uh, who may, this is maybe all new or maybe they're exploring uh, you and whether or not you even exist and whether or not you even love them even after all that they have done and God I call out on their behalf forgive me and have mercy on me Jesus you can pray that prayer right where you are 
you don't even have to do it audibly. It's the conviction that you have about it. And if you call out to God and you ask him and you come to him humbly and ask him if he will receive you, you can become his child. Uh, so God, on, on their behalf, I say, have mercy on me, a sinner, and forgive me and uh, make me your child today, Jesus. I believe that you died in my place for my sin and for my transgression, that you rose from the dead to transform me and to change me and to make me more and more like you. So come into my life, God, as I surrender myself to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm just going to let the band go ahead and play whatever they want. And uh, I'll be over at the front. Would love to visit with you. We can handle your electronic giving up here as well if you want to give to Haiti. But God bless you today. Remember to pick up your kids. They're over in uh, number 12. And have a wonderful, wonderful rest of weekend and a great week ahead. God bless you, everyone. Sing